Hello, I'm Sam Clement, and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today, we're joined by Neil Alcock, the man behind film blog The Incredible Suit, freelance film critic, and James Bond expert. Hello, Neil. Hello, Sam. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Neil, I would love to know how many times has a local radio station booked you on to comment on James Bond casting rumours? <laughs> Probably could count that on the fingers of no fingers. Really? No, that's no, not true. You must have been I'm on. being modest. <laughs> Less than, fewer than ten times. That's more than me. <laughs> okay, well, you are not a James Bond nerd, and you're a better person for it. People who follow you online know that you are you know, as a James Bond expert. Also run the excellent film blog, uh, The Incredible Suit. Thank you. I'm an avid reader, a big, big, big fan. I was really excited to invite you on this podcast because, as far as I'm aware, no James Bond films are under 90 minutes. That so is you a would shame. have to choose something else. Yeah, I think the shortest Bond film is Quantum of Solace, which is, uh, oh, I don't know, 106 minutes or something. But that's your favourite Bond film because it's the shortest? No, <laughs> no. I, I like it more than most people. Uh, I find that it's quite underrated. It's got a very dark mood that I like. Certainly the action stuff is shot very badly and edited confusingly, but I think Daniel Craig is great in it. I also feel like we're getting off topic because we didn't come here to talk about Bond. I just think we got to give your fans what they want and they want the Bond chat. <laughs> All my fans are in this room, Sam. <laughs> no, I, I, I sort of find it interesting. I, I'd love someone to do a 90-minute or less Bond. Come on, come on, Kerry Fukunaga, you can do this. Yeah, maybe you will. When did you start your blog? The Incredible Suit. I started it almost exactly 10 years ago. We've just, I say we, it's just me. We have just celebrated our 10th birthday. Happy birthday. Uh, thank you very much. You're looking very good at 10. Yeah. I do look pretty good, don't I? When you do something like that, you sort of look back at all the things you've done over the years. What's been your favourite project on your on, on the blog? I, do, I, I kind of set projects for myself as I ran out of things to talk about. Because in the early days, I was just wittering about a poster that had been released or a trailer or some bit of news. And so I was doing something every day, pretty much. But then I realised that was quite difficult to maintain. So I started to slow down a bit. And then I, I started to focus on projects that I could get uh, several posts out of, which made life uh, much easier. And so recently, in the last few years, I've been focusing on filmographies of my favourite directors. So I've watched all of my favourite directors' films, and I'm kind of writing about them. I have really enjoyed doing that. Uh, so I've really, I've, I've got quite deeply into Stanley Kubrick this year, for example, which has been really interesting. But it's like an excellent resource because you're covering their entire filmography, not just, you know, the greatest hits. Yeah. And so I thought with the Kubrick one, you have a lot of stuff about his early films, which no one's really... There's not a lot of writing about that I could... You no, know, I, it's, I've read anyway. it's, it's actually much easier to write about those ones that, that there isn't a lot of stuff out there about. Once you get to something like 2001 or The Shining, it's impossible to find something new and original to say. But the early ones, they're quite interesting to look at because you can see the germ of what would become the brand Stanley Kubrick in there, but you know it's very very you have to peel back a lot of layers to get there same with the other directors that i've looked at martin scorsese steven spielberg alfred hitchcock who's next i don't know i don't know we'll get kubrick out of the way and we'll see 
so you're you're someone who watches a lot of films, obviously writing the blog and and just uh, just for fun. Does runtime ever come into your film watching decision making? Well, if you're doing a project on a given director, then no, because you have to watch those films. If I'm just trying to pick something to watch on a day off or a Saturday night or a Friday night, then definitely. I would usually present my wife with a pile of DVDs and Blu-rays and say, which of these would you like to watch? And she'll kind of fill it out half of them and then present me with the other half and say, whichever of these is the shortest. <laughs> so I then usually have to you know, look at the back of each box to find out which is the shortest and we'll end up watching that one. Short run times are definitely a bonus. That's basically my Saturday night you described. Yeah, <laughs> I think if you've got a day off and you haven't got much planned, you can sit down with a three-hour film but if it's a Friday or Saturday night and you've not, you know, your dinner has been late and you don't have tons of time, then yeah, it's good to stick on something that's like 90 or 100 minutes. My nightmare is I've got two hours to watch a movie. What to watch? What to watch? Okay, it's, yeah. it's now one hour, 50 minutes to watch a movie. <laughs> Always happens. What to watch? Uh, 145 and then 90 sort of by that time, you, you should know what you want to see. <laughs> that's a frequent occurrence. So when we got in touch to invite you on the podcast, did you have something in mind uh, or did you do a bit of research and, and think about what you wanted to talk about? Well, obviously, it was a total surprise that you were going to invite me. So I was caught completely unawares. So uh, I had a little think and I boiled it down to two of Hollywood's biggest stars that I was interested in. One was Buster Keaton, who's made loads of films that are 90 minutes or less slash fewer i'm not going to go down the alley plum route of being a pedant there that, that would be, guy that would be so unlike non grata me. on this podcast <laughs> so buster keaton i i was thinking of quite a few of his comedies maybe even the shorts that are only maybe 10 minutes long or so i thought that would mix it up a bit make it a bit crazy but i know a little bit more about alfred hitchcock than buster keaton so i thought it would be better if i did something about alfred hitchcock who is my favorite director so I kind of had a look at uh, which of his films fell into that runtime that were would be allowed. And uh, you probably know this, but about 15 or 16? There are a surprising number yeah. <laughs> of films that are eligible. Well, he made like 54 films, I think. So the, uh, most of the early ones, but a couple of kind of mid-period Hitchcocks are quite short. So I landed on uh, a choice of three of those, and I picked the one that was my favourite in the end. What film have you brought to the festival, Neil? I have brought the 1948 motion picture directed by Alfred Hitchcock, Rope. Believing themselves to be intellectually superior to their contemporaries, flatmates Brandon, John Doe, and Philip, Farley Granger, murder their friend David Kentley purely to see if they can get away with it. They then throw a cocktail party serving food from the top of a trunk where they have hidden David's body. Their guests include both David's father and fiancé, as well as college lecturer Rupert Cadell, James Stewart, who becomes increasingly suspicious of the evening wears on. Director Alfred Hitchcock constructed the film out of ten continuous reels, making no use of his usual montage technique and keeping cuts to a minimum. This is our very first Hitchcock film on the podcast. Excellent. Well, that was a very uh, correct synopsis. I don't think there's anything left for us to talk about. <laughs> Done. So yeah, very first Hitchcock. And as you mentioned, there's quite a few Hitchcocks that are eligible for the festival, including The Man Who Knew Too Much, Young and Innocent, German Concentration Camp's Factual Survey. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I think you've made that up. It's on his IMDb. <laughs> Number 17, Blackmail, Waltzes from Vienna, The 39 Steps, Secret Agent, Sabotage, The Skin Game, Memory of the Camps, Bon Voyage, Banquo's Chair... 
always tell your wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did you settle on rope of your Hitchcocks from your top three? I'd love to know what the other two were that almost made it as the, well. Uh, the other two were um, the, man who, the Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, the first version thereof, because he made one in, I think, 1934. And then he remade it in 1956. I probably have my date slightly wrong. But that first one is a brilliant British thriller that mm. I would highly recommend anybody seeks out. The other one was The 39 Steps, which is just a, another brilliant British thriller. It's really funny. It is genuinely thrilling. It's got some stuff in there that you just... If you're watching a film from, like, 1936 you might not expect it to be this exciting and this much fun, and it totally is. So that's a great one. But Rope, when I watched all of Hitchcock's films uh, for my little project for my blog, I'd seen Rope a few times before, but this time round, I just suddenly realised that there was this whole richness to the script, and it's famous for its shooting technique, but there's there's a lot more going on in there that really kind of made it stand out for me, and I think... That because of that, I decided that it was probably a bit a slightly better film than those other two. But I mean, it's not you can't really compare them; they're not similar films. But that's the one I went for. Is is, is Rope one of your Hitchcocks, which you've sort of come back to on a number of occasions? I've probably seen it five or six times. I don't remember when I first saw it. I did A level film studies in crew in Cheshire and my lecturer who's a guy called Bryn Eudes who won't listen to this but I just want to put his name out there because he introduced me to Alfred Hitchcock and the first film that I watched was Vertigo which is the best Hitchcock film that's inarguable but I got so into Hitchcock because of him that I started to watch them all from that point all the ones that I could get hold of anyway so I probably watched Rope not long after that that was a long time ago that's like 1990 three or four or something. This is quite a notable film, not only for its uh, sort of ambitious filming technique, but it's Hitchcock's first film in colour. Mm. I think a lot of people associate, I guess if you're more of a sort of a top-line Hitchcock fan, you think of those widescreens, the Vista Visions, these yeah. lovely, lovely, you know, very gorgeous films. But of course he has a history of making silent films, black and white films. He's sort of been there as all of these technological advances have been made in filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, he started in the silent era and um, he worked in Germany a lot, learned a lot of his technique from those guys. And so there was a lot of stark black and white, almost noirish stuff, although noir wasn't really a thing at that point. But, you know, it was very contrasty. And then his kind of early talkies were, were black and white, obviously, but they had a bit more depth to them visually. But he he was one of few directors to kind of successfully transition from the silent era to, to talkies because that was not an easy time for anybody, really. And then he kind of started to get into colour in the 50s. Rope was 1948. That was his first colour film. And then in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, before he made his last film, most of those were colour. And yeah, you're right. Like North by Northwest is an absolute riot of colour. There's reds and greens and all sorts of stuff everywhere. And it's all... There's a, there's a lot in Hitchcock that is to do with colour, and Vertigo, for example, uh, has, uses phenomenal deep reds and greens to signify certain things, so he was heavily into that. But Rope was his first go at colour, and it's actually not a very colourful film. All the colours are quite muted. Mm. Suits are browns and greys. John Dahl wears this very deep blue suit, which is almost black. There's a, there's a girl in it who wears a kind of deep red dress, but nothing is bright. Which kind of suits the mood, I suppose. It's a fairly sombre chamber piece. Yeah, as the synopsis alludes to, he's sort of doing these long takes on these sort of 10-minute reels. But it is a, it's a controlled location. Is that maybe just for him to find his feet using colour? I don't think so. I don't think colour really daunted him. I think that he was just at a stage where he wanted to 
experiment and he wanted to push himself. There's a very famous series of interviews that he did with Francois Truffaut where he, dis in retrospect, describes rope as a stunt. And he says it's basically just a stunt. And he's quite dismissive of it. So he was a director who wanted to, he always wanted to try and kind of do the opposite of what was expected. So later on in Psycho, uh, spoiler for Psycho coming, so cover your ears. Pause the podcast. He kills the heroine like a third into the film. Nobody expected that. In North by Northwest, there's an assassination attempt on Cary Grant from a, from a crop dusting plane in a wide open field where at the time people were usually being assassinated in dark alleys and stuff like that. And I think he had got so reliant on the, his editing technique and the montage that he picked up from Russian and German directors that he was a big fan of in the early days, that he wanted to see if he could make an interesting and tense film without that. So hence the long takes and the not total lack, but more or less lack of editing. His challenge in this is to hide the edits and it's, it's quite good watching that. You know, I think some of them you can miss on a first watch. Yeah. Uh, which is what's, a fun experiment. What's quite funny is that he... There are like five cuts that are quote-unquote invisible where the camera moves behind a character's back or behind the chest that contains the body. And then there are, I think, five visible quote, uh, visible edits where you very clearly see that a shot has changed. And those visible edits are much harder to notice in the as you, in the course of watching the film than the ones that he's trying to hide because it's so obvious when he just crashes the camera into someone's back for like a second and you think whoa what what's the cameraman doing is he drunk and so just from watching those kind of five cuts you get a sense of how editing works in narrative film which is quite interesting where does this film sit in his filmography has he in terms of his personal life has he just moved to america he moved to America in 19, I think about 1940, and, oh, okay. uh, to make Rebecca and um, Foreign Correspondent. Foreign Correspondent, incidentally, is his most underrated film. I highly recommend seeking that out because that's another absolute belter of a thriller. David O. Selznick got him over from Britain um, to make a bunch of films in America. Their relationship got a little bit tense and he was quite pleased to get out of that contract. And this was the first film that he made this is the first film that he produced himself under his own company, Transatlantic Pictures. He kind of co-produced it with a guy called Sidney Bernstein, who kept a fairly low profile. So there's, he's not as huge a figure as David O. Selznick was. But it was, I think, his 34th or 35th film. So he got a lot of films under his belt, but he was kind of used to Hollywood. He'd been there nearly... He'd been there like eight years, I guess. He was friends with Cary Grant and Ingrid Pergman and people like that. So, you know, he was he was well into the, the Hollywood system at that point. Do you realize we've actually done it exactly as we planned? And not a single infinitesimal thing has gone wrong. It was perfect. Yes. An immaculate murder. We've killed for the sake of danger and for the sake of killing. We're alive. Truly and wonderfully alive. So I don't know the cast particularly well outside of James Stewart who's uh, obviously a big name at this point and he is the person who has the huge billing on the poster but he comes into the film reasonably late mm. uh, that character but I yeah John Doe and and Farley Granger who is also in another Hitchcock film I've seen Strangers uh, on Farley the Train. Granger's and Strangers on the Train yeah yeah I'm not really familiar with these with these actors are yeah. you uh... no I, me neither uh, James Stewart was interesting because Hitchcock wanted Cary Grant for that role but he was under contract to RKO so they wouldn't release him and so he decided to go with James Stewart I think because again he thought it would be a challenge to 
pick this guy who was always a bit of a kind of likable everyman goody goody character in westerns and so on put him in a role where he wasn't going to be that he was a, a slightly morally ambiguous character and there's a lot of complaints leveled at rope for casting jimmy stewart in that role because people think that because he was cast against type then it just didn't work but that's that, that argument kind of falls away over time because people who came to that come to that film now and maybe aren't necessarily familiar with jimmy stewart's history kind of accept him in that part and i think he's really good in it especially at the very end but in terms of casting yeah you there's no real big names in it but there are faces in there that you would recognize if you'd gone to the cinema at the time you would recognize them from other stuff i think they're really i'm sort of surprised not to have seen them in more john doe and farley granger and more stuff because they're really good together yeah i really like their dynamic they do have an interesting chemistry again people are generally quite mean about farley granger's performance and i think that might have kind of forced him out of the limelight a bit i don't know i don't i'm, I'm not a farley granger expert but <laughs> it's a shame that we didn't he's really good in strangers on a train but he's, mm. he's he's very good and kind of similarly in rope he's very good at this nervy maybe he overdoes it a bit in rope and that's probably the criticism but he's very good at this kind of nervous character who's got himself in way over his head which is kind of typical of most hitchcock characters to be fair uh, and, and John Doe is, is quite a smooth criminal, really. Like he's, uh, he's, he's. I think he's got uh, his uh, to make his whole getup, his haircut, yeah, that sort of look about him, and he's so confident. He's really smug. Oh uh, God, he's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a film that's quite interesting to look at from a psychoanalytical point of view, which I'm by no means an expert on, but I've looked at it a little bit, and in terms of kind of the id and super ego and stuff like that john doll's character is kind of raging id he's this character who's just driven to do stuff that normal people would maybe kind of think of in their darkest thoughts but then the super ego would take over and say you can't do that because that's like illegal and awful but he doesn't have that barrier and so he just kind of goes ahead and does this terrible thing because he believes that he is a superior individual and that David, the guy he murders, is an inferior individual. And it's very interesting dynamic because it kind of, it's about this kind of entitlement of overprivileged people. And I think for that reason, you can, it's still relevant because you still get that. Um, I mean, not necessarily people going around murdering people, but you just see it all the time in politics and big business and you know, people who think that they don't need to pay taxes or that they don't need to follow these rules or they think they can make stuff up, make stuff up and call it the truth. That is a kind of, that, that's, that all kind of boils down to what we see in Rope about people who just think they're above everything else. But then also push it. So he is so keen to in like just, I guess, prove that he can do it like he he takes quite a lot of risks that like inviting yeah close friends and family over for this dinner party this insane party yeah. giving the the books that they've come to look at these famous these collected uh, books to jimmy stewart's character in the rope yeah uh, that I he's mean, used to strangle david yeah. he's giving them to he's giving them to the father uh, but it's a kind of last minute thing that he decides to tie them up in the rope that he's just killed his son with he subconsciously obviously wants to get caught and so he just keeps taking more and more risks as the, as the story goes on and you just think you need to stop because you're you are going to get caught and you get caught in this kind of thing where you kind of want him to get away with it a little bit but at the same time you really want him 
to get caught for it because he's done a horrible thing, unquestionably. I mean, that's the power of Hitchcock's filmmaking. I, I did. I was just thinking of a moment where I went, no, <laughs> because as they, they sort of, like, you know, Hitchcock is often you know, the master of suspense, and this film is very suspenseful. Yeah, all of these people could potentially open this chest At and any time. question yeah. his weird behaviour. Yeah. But there's a moment where uh, the sort of housekeeper is going to put things away yeah. in the chest where the body is, and there's this amazing shot which is sort it's of really from long the, static the, the shot. casket's uh, level from the the dresser's level. I, I, that was that we, me and producer Louise both audibly gasped because <laughs> every time she comes back you think she's going to open it and everyone's going to see it. and then she goes off and fannies about with something else and then comes back and yeah that kind of stuff is amazing and also early on there's a shot where you see the rope hanging out of the side of the chest but the other characters don't see it straight away mm. and you think oh god that's going to be the thing that gives them away but then Hitchcock kind of turns the tables on you by getting a character to spot it yeah and the script sort of there's lots of long conversational scenes, but the script doesn't really have a good reason for why they've act they're acting weirdly. They they move the sort of dinner party from the dining room into the living room onto this weird chest. Yeah. And there's no real good reason. So you're like <laughs> if they don't they don't hold up to any sort of verbal scrutiny from no, their not really. their fellow dinner guests. <laughs> no. What was quite interesting is that um Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the um screenplay did not include the murder at the beginning in his script. So the first thing you see after the titles is, is the murder, and then they shove him in the box, and then the film starts proper. Arthur Lawrence did not intend for the murder to be seen, and so the film started, and everybody was being a bit odd and behaving peculiarly in this dinner party, and then Jimmy Stewart turns up and starts suspecting them of murdering this guy. And you don't know throughout the whole film whether they did or didn't. So that was his intention for where the, where the tension was going to come from. Hitchcock decided he was going to show the murder and so the film changes quite a lot from Arthur Lawrence's intention but you know it's not an Arthur Lawrence film it's an Alfred Hitchcock film makes sense I think it's a good device to it's, it's good that the audience are on this, this sort of journey and that's what makes it tense yeah for those 80 minutes like, yeah. you know, it's quite a edge of your seat sort of thing I even think though so. it's a single location and it's people talking for 80 minutes and a lot of the complaints at the time and since were that it's not tense enough and it's not interesting enough and it's more interesting as a technical and formal experiment than an actual thriller. But I don't agree with that. I think Hitchcock finds different things to do with the camera that he wouldn't have done if he was editing it in more straightforward fashion. He does kind of move the camera into very tight... At the beginning, there are very tight two shots and then he, he pulls it out wide and to see everybody in the room. So you get all that geography. You get everything that you would get if it's cut properly you just get a kind of different feel to it but i think there's still tension which comes from the script and the and the um and the situation i think what's really fascinating about it is that this is a film about two guys who think they're so superior that they try to get away with something incredibly risky just to see if they can do it directed by a guy who thinks he's so superior that he tries to get away with something incredibly risky just to see if he can do it i think you know that's the rope in a nutshell and i've tried to clear my way with logic and superior intellect. And you've thrown my own words right back in my face, Brandon. You were right to, if nothing else, a man should stand by his words. But you've given my words a meaning that I never dreamed of. And you've tried to twist them into a cold, logical excuse for your ugly murder. What I really like about Hitchcock is he, he embraces the whole cinema experience. He loves the marketing of his movies. He loves putting himself in his movies. Yeah. The, the, the tra- have you seen the trailer the for The trailer's rape? great. <laughs> Why don't more films have a trailer that is a prequel to the film? 
It's brilliant. So, so as we mentioned, uh, the film takes place entirely inside this apartment, apart from the credits, which are shot outside. The trailer is like sat on a park bench. Yeah, it's the <laughs> completely different location. <laughs> poor David, who gets murdered in the first seconds of the film, is given like an entire scene in the trailer and, with Janet, and with, uh, with yeah, uh, his fiance. Yeah, fiance who's questioning his whereabouts. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like because I on the version of the uh, Blu-ray I have, I, I wasn't. I don't think it was on there. I watched this on YouTube. Okay. I feel like they should make you watch this before you see the yeah. film. It's such a fun bit of marketing. Yeah. No, it's a really, really cool idea. Then we sort of mentioned the Hitchcock cameo and the whole. And I knew, I knew he always hides himself in his films. Yeah. Totally missed it in this film. Okay. Is this uh, based on your rewatch? Is this his most subtle cameo? It's pretty subtle. There's Lifeboat a few years earlier, which is, again, he, he restricted himself by setting a film entirely on a lifeboat. He manages, and he's not a character in that film at all, but he manages to get himself in it by appearing in a newspaper advert that on a newspaper that a character is reading. Rope, I think, is probably even more subtle than that. His... He, he he does appear in the opening titles. He He's walking down the street, but you wouldn't really know it was him. But then later on through the window of the apartment you see in the cityscape behind the famous outline of his face which he designed as his kind of brand trademark is kind of lit up in neon so you see that kind of flashing away in a few shots what i noticed on this rewatch was in the background of the scenes there's a it's a new york skyline Mm. the clouds are sort of subtly moving Mm. and it's this big it must be a big map painting with various layers and or, or something like it, it's a model it's a giant model which i think was like three times as big as the apartment set and it had like something like twenty five thousand feet of cable in it to make it all light up as the film progresses from kind of late afternoon into early evening so all the all the skyscrapers light up so they've all got tiny little light bulbs in them the clouds are made of this kind of spun glass they don't move in shot but every time they cut to to reset some stagehands came along and just shoved them along a little bit (laughs) so that's how that was done the background is a whole there's a whole story about the background in itself which is really fascinating one of the one of the things that's quite interesting is that the the guys who were lighting the background went a little bit overboard with the sunset and they obviously didn't see it until the next day because they didn't get the dailies back until the next day and they were watching this entire reel and Hitchcock went crazy because it was just super colourful and he just didn't want that. It looked like it was in Mexico or something. <laughs> so I think the last five reels had to be reshot, which was oh, wow. a bit of a pain for everybody because they'd already done them several times. I love the sort of it becoming the evening and then the neon sort of coming on the lights or the street lights coming yeah. on. It's totally believable. The yeah, story kind of unfolds in real time, which is quite good. I think somebody examined it and said, well, actually, it's a bit, it's a bit compressed because this... Could, this guy couldn't have been here and then he's there in the next shot or something like that but I mean events are compressed anyway because it's like 90 minutes that encompasses a murder an entire dinner party and then the uncovering of the murder <laughs> so you know that's pushing it at, at best but that's kind of director's narrative creative license I think yeah you, you, you can give them that yeah I think at the point sort of around the mid-range around the film at the beginning I was just enjoying the whole experience looking at how beautiful the set was mm and how great these actors were but and then i was looking at the clouds and it was just the two leads but as everybody comes in i stopped looking at it and then before you know it it's night time yeah. it's so well done yeah. uh, that, that, that's in itself is, is is incredible and he knew that it was it was a great thing to show as well because there's that bit at the beginning where 
John Dole opens the blinds and kind of it's like the it's like the curtains in a theatre or a cinema opening to reveal this background. Hitchcock knows that this is amazing. You're going to go, wow, this is definitely. And then suddenly the kind of sounds from the street come up, honking horns and what, voices and what have you. Can we talk about James Stewart's puddings? <laughs> <laughs> He's so greedy. He's so greedy. I mean, I. I, I, I've never, I was trying to work out what he was eating. So there's a scene during the dinner party, dessert is served, of course. And it's, it's sort of like a mountain of cream or ice cream. Of a, <laughs> I think it's ice cream, yeah. It's, it just looks, it looks very indulgent. Yeah. <laughs> and they've only just had like an, a couple of mouthfuls of chicken. And then Jimmy Stewart is like straight into the dessert. He's like, see that ice cream? I'm going to have two of those. And then he wanders off and then the housekeeper ca- catches him with the two ice creams and he says oh yeah one of these is for you I don't think it was I think he was going to have them both for himself it's classic Jimmy Stewart <laughs> it's so Stewart I quite like we sort of touched on it earlier but this is a very different Jimmy Stewart and I, I say I'm a Jimmy Stewart fan but I'm a fan of like Jimmy Stewart the guy you know the yeah. this wonderful life guy the shop around the corner guy yeah. and and in this he's he is very subdued and it I sort of want. I was like, "Oh, Jimmy, just do a do a bit of George Bailey. <laughs> Go on." <laughs> yeah, it was a really interesting choice for him. It's like three years after "It's a Wonderful Life." Can't remember exactly when the shop around the corner was made, but I think it was a few. It was early forties. Okay, maybe. he's got this persona that he's carried over from his westerns, and and that is absolutely not nowhere to be seen in Rope. But I think it proves that he was more versatile than people gave him credit for. His his very last speech in Rope is spine tingling because. He is a character in the film who has been these guys' housemaster prep school and he's taught them and it's uh, it was actually intended that he had had an affair with John Dahl's character but that didn't come across in the script or direction so you don't really get that impression. But because of his kind of teachings about Nietzschean philosophy and the Superman theory and all this kind of stuff about superior individuals which uh, John Dahl's character then kind of takes on a little bit too much Mm. jimmy stewart's character has kind of radicalized this guy almost and he is essentially responsible and and you see it kind of dawning on him in this last speech that it's his fault that this guy has done this thing Uh, and you can see him kind of trying to extricate himself from this responsibility as he's talking and he kind of gets away with it because john dawley is obviously responsible for his own actions but at the same time this guy has taught him this mad stuff but but seems to have forgotten to teach him kind of basic moral and ethical things that you really should know that's a that's a brilliant Stuart performance at the end he goes on to do more great stuff in vertigo you know he's he's that's an even weirder darker really quite sick character in many ways but this i think is is he's great in it and he wears that incredible suit as well that you see. Oh, no, I've said the incredible suit. Hey! Yeah, but you see it. We were talking about this earlier. You see it in the Blu-ray. Everybody gets a close-up of their their clothes and the, the detailing. Jimmy Stewart's got this kind of three-piece grey suit, which is just beautiful. And John Dahl's got this blue suit that you can see the wool on. And Anyway, sorry, I'm going off into <laughs> high-definition nerd speak. It's only a piece of rope, Philip, an ordinary household article. Why hide it? What do you think, Neil, is the lasting legacy of rope? This is often cited as a huge technical achievement and an example of someone maybe going out of their comfort zone. Mm. Has, has that sort of methodology and, and, and that approach to filmmaking lived on throughout the ages yeah i mean it didn't change cinema people didn't then suddenly start making films without cuts even though it probably would have been well would it have been quicker no probably not probably would have been much more complicated his next film under capricorn included a lot of long takes it wasn't the same as rope in that it wasn't intended to look like one long shot but it had a lot of long takes but it was much less successful and frankly much much worse it was a really <laughs> boring film don't bother with it but i think it kind of 
encouraged future directors to try and bring themselves out of their own comfort zone and you you would get other films that used very long takes after that and films that were purportedly one long take something like Birdman is a very obvious recent example which is obviously not one continuous shot but it's edited to look like that mm. uh, Vic- Sebastian Shipper's Victoria which came out in 2014 I think which is one very long shot for like two hours and 20 it's something a very long minutes film, yeah. which is just incredible and then other stuff like Locke, which you've had, talked about on your podcast, is is a director restricting himself to a single location, buried, you know, things like that. I think all of that, you can kind of draw a line back to rope. So there we have it. Rope is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. Now, Neil, when the day comes, we will be having our screening of Rope at the festival. How would you how would you like to present this to an audience? First thing I will do is I will uh, you know that device that Malcolm McDowell is forced to wear in a Clockwork Orange where his eyelids are forced open. So everybody will have to wear those to simulate the experience of no edits because they won't be allowed to blink. <laughs> and there will also be a chest on the stage in front of the screen which will uh, remain there for the entire duration of the film, possibly spotlit. I don't know if that would be too distracting. And then at the very end of the film, Alfred Hitchcock would climb out of it and <laughs> deliver a brilliant Q&A. <laughs> Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and would you like to host this Q&A? Sure, why not? I mean, I'd like to do a Q&A with Alfred Hitchcock, so if this is my only opportunity, then I'm well up for it. I think he's quite busy, so it could well be his only uh, his only appearance this year. <laughs> I think if he's going to do anything, he's going to do the 90 minutes or less film festival right well, he's made loads of films that are eligible, you know. I mean, he could be one of our patrons. Yeah, he could be a sub-season. I'll write to him. Okay. Uh, and I guess alongside Hitchcock in his in the uh, in the coffin with the lace doily on top and all of those fantastic ice creams. Oh yeah, everybody would get the everyone would get two ice creams definitely. The, and it would just be called the Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'll have, <laughs> have two. I'll have one Jimmy Stewart, which is two ice creams. <laughs> If you could invite anyone else from this film along to maybe talk to or introduce the film, who would you who would you invite? I would invite Constance Collier, who plays Mrs. Atwater, because she's an absolute riot. She's, she's like my mother-in-law. She just keeps <laughs> saying completely, uh, complete non-secretors throughout the whole film, and no one knows what she's on about. She's great. That's right. We can sort that out. We'll buy her plane ticket. <laughs> I'd love to have the guys who were like fluffing the clouds on the background. <laughs> the fluffers. I want the cloud you fluffers. Want them? Okay. <laughs> It's a job that doesn't exist in cinema anymore with green screen and that sort of stuff. It's such a shame those people don't get any work anymore. And do you think this film could or should be longer than 90 minutes? Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's already slightly compressed and Jimmy Stewart maybe makes a couple of logic leaps that are not 100% convincing, so perhaps you could stretch it out a bit. But at the same time, there are some quite long sequences where people are just waffling about stuff and you kind of think, uh, this could have been cut down. So, uh, no, I would leave it the same length, but I would make some bits longer and some bits shorter. Awesome. Okay, well, I, I look forward to the uh, Rope Redux uh, edit by Neil. <laughs> uh, well, maybe we'll screen that version. So there we have it. Rope is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Brilliant. Our first Hitchcock just feels like a good milestone. Yes! And as we mentioned at the top of the show, there are a lot of other Hitchcock films. <laughs> a couple of them were on your shortlist, Neil. Yeah. And a couple which were nowhere near your shortlist. <laughs> <being chosen. laughs> no. uh, if you ever run out of guests and you need to start reusing guests, I am here for you with more Hitchcock. Thank you very much uh, for joining us, Neil. Where can people read more of your work on the internet? 
You can read semi-regular witterings on Twitter at IncredibleSuit, or you can go to my blog, uh, which you can find at theincrediblesuit.com. Thank you for listening. Please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. As a new independent podcast, it really helps. We're also available on Spotify and all good podcatchers. We also have a website, 90minfilmfest.com, 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us on the website or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Austwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I read your review of the new Danny Boyle film yesterday. And I got you a gift. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hold on. It's a T-shirt in yesterday yellow, which says, uh, everyone in the world has forgotten the Beatles. Yes, it's a yesterday T-shirt, isn't it? Does it say yesterday on the front? Yeah. It's white on yellow, which doesn't really work, just like the film. Hey! <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> I'll wear it all the time.